0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan. This is a bonus episode, episode 17, The Edge of the Coin. Thank you for tuning in to our second episode in a short series throughout the last week of October, where we look at some of the the creepier accounts left to us from the medieval period. On today's episode, we will try to catch a glimpse of those things that go bump in the night. Today, we talk, well, you know, it's difficult to pin this specific story down to one topic. The story has it all, but I would like to take this moment to offer a fair warning to our more squeamish and youthful listeners. This episode is a little intense, so if you are at all bothered by the things on the scarier side of life, please, I urge you to skip this episode. If you are more of a fan of the supernatural and the visceral, then I hope you will continue to listen because this is one of my favorite stories that I've discovered from deep in the annals of history. This particular story comes to us from the 12th century writings of William of Newburgh in his account called the history of English affairs written mere decades after William, the conqueror takes England as his own. I hope you enjoy the show. Life had changed dramatically in the years since 1066, and there was no doubt that the English, from the nobility to the peasantry, were still culturally and socially reeling from its effects. William of Newburgh set out to document English history, but as we will soon realize in the course of our podcast narrative today, these kinds of writings are usually highly propagandistic in favor of the ruling elite of the author's benefactors as well as infused with the dogma and supernatural fervor in which Ecclesiastics, who were by most accounts the only people who were educated enough to read and to write, infuse their work. As for William of Newburgh, he was a bishop who was no different. He, being a man of the cloth, believed, as most did, in the power of the supernatural in his everyday life. So when he accounted for the goings-on of a kingdom in transition... William no doubt included the goings-on of the spiritual realm, coinciding with the secular realm in tandem. These two places, for lack of a better term, the spiritual and the secular, were not separated to the people of the Middle Ages. In fact, one can make the argument that this was doubtless fact. William of Newburgh was no different than his contemporaries at all levels of society when he saw life, as one could say, one coin at any given moment one could only see one side of the coin which would explain the subtlety of faith when looking at the head side of a coin even today one has faith that there is a tails side even if one cannot see it this of course can be seen in two different ways the ecclesiastic in which the faith ensures the other side of the coin constitutes all things spiritual and supernatural the other way, the secular, in which the faith of the other side of the coin represents simply possibility and nothing secure and firm in existence. The people of the Middle Ages predominantly chose to agree with William of Newburgh. The other side of the coin was God's domain. And the other side of the coin was never far. In fact, they reasoned that both sides of the coin were connected by a thin veil, the edge of the coin, if you will. These sides, quite simply, were not separate. Rather, they were intrinsically attached, and there were moments when the secular and the supernatural overlapped, when a person was inexplicably able to see that edge, that thin veil, that merger of the two sides of the coin. William of Newburgh nestled stories he most likely believed were stories on par with the other historical accounts in his book, The History of English Affairs. There was no separation between these two sides of the coin. Can we assume William is telling the truth? Well, according to John Gillingham in his book, The English in the Twelfth Century, William of Newburgh is, quote, By reputation, the most thoughtful and judicious of 12th century English historians. With no doubt whatsoever, William was telling his truth, which, as we know, has little to do with capital T truth and more to do with personal narrative. But it's worth mentioning that perception dictates reality. And if William and his countrymen perceived these to be real, then, for the medieval mind, these stories are as true as they come. William's stories take place from the idyllic hills of the English-Scottish borderlands, a region in near-constant flux throughout the Middle Ages, down south to the Midlands, Today, William of Newburgh, in book five of his tome, reveals the edge of the coin in the form of the stories that have come to be called The Tale of the Hundepriest and The Vampire of Anantis Castle. Though the focus of this episode does not begin until chapter 24, William begins this tale in chapter 22, entitled Of the Prodigy of the Dead Man wandered after burial. In this chapter William warms the reader up to the idea that the dead walk the earth. And in chapter 23, which we will read through as well, seeks to solidify this concept with a shorter example from English history. Here now, the tales of two ghostly encounters as told by William of Newburgh around the year 1198. This first one I have called The Undead Nuisance. In these days a wonderful event befell the county of Buckingham, Which I, in the first instance, partially heard from certain friends, and was afterwards more fully informed of by Stephen, the venerable archdeacon of that province. A certain man died, and according to custom, by the honorable exertion of his wife and kindred, was laid in the tomb on the eve of the Lord's ascension. On the following night, however, having entered the bed where his wife was reposing, he not only terrified her on awakening, but nearly crushed her by the insupportable weight of his body. The next night, also, he afflicted the astonished woman in the same manner, who, frightened at the danger, as the struggle of the third night drew near, took care to remain awake herself and surround herself with watchful companions. Still he came, but being repulsed by the shouts of the watchers and seeing that he was prevented from doing mischief, he departed, Thus driven off from his wife, he harassed, in a similar manner, his own brothers, who were dwelling in the same street. But they, following the cautious example of the woman, passed the nights in wakefulness with their companions, ready to meet and repel danger. He appeared, notwithstanding, as if, with the hope of surprising them, should they be overcome with drowsiness. But being repelled by the carefulness and valor of the watchers, he rioted among the animals, both indoors and outdoors, as their wildness and unwanted movements testified. Having thus become a serious nuisance to his friends and neighbors, he imposed upon all the same necessity for nocturnal watchfulness. And in that very street, a general watch was kept in every house, each being fearful of his approach unawares. After having for some time rioted in this manner, during the night time along, he began to wander abroad in daylight, formidable indeed to all, but visible only to a few. For oftentimes, on his encountering a number of persons, he would appear to one or two, only though at the same time his presence was concealed from the rest. At length, The inhabitants, alarmed beyond measure, thought it advisable to seek the counsel of the church, and they detailed the whole affair with tearful lamentation to the above mentioned archdeacon at a meeting of the clergy over which he was solemnly presiding. Whereupon he immediately intimated in writing the whole circumstances of the case to the venerable Bishop of Lincoln, who was then resident in London, whose opinion and a judgment on so unwanted a matter he was very properly of opinion should be waited for. But the bishop, being amazed at his account, held a searching investigation with his companions, and there were some who said that that such things had often befallen in England, and cited frequent examples to show that tranquility could not be restored to the people until the body of this most wretched man were dug up and burnt." This proceeding, however, appeared indecent and improper in the last degree to the Reverend Bishop, who shortly after addressed a letter of absolution written with his own hand to the Archdeacon in order that it might be demonstrated by inspection in what state the body of that man really was, and he was commanded his tomb be opened and the letter having been laid upon his breast to be again closed. So the sepulcher, having been opened, the corpse was found as it had been placed there, and the charter of absolution, having been deposited upon its breast, and the tomb once more closed, he was thenceforth never more seen to wander, nor permitted to inflict annoyance or terror upon any one." This next tale is from William of Newburgh's next chapter in Book 5, Chapter 23, entitled Of a Similar Occurrence at Berwick. William writes, In the northern parts of England, also, we know that another event, not unlike this and equally wonderful, happened about the same time. The mouth of the River Tweed, and in the jurisdiction of the King of Scotland, where stands a noble city which is called Berwick. In this town, a certain man, very wealthy, but as it afterwards appeared, a great rogue, having been buried after his death, sallied forth, by contrivance, as it is believed, of Satan. Out of his grave by night, and was borne hither and thither, pursued by a pack of dogs with loud barkings, thus striking great terror into the neighbors and returning to his tomb before daylight, after this had continued for several days, and no one dared to be found, out of doors after dusk, for each dreaded an encounter with this deadly monster. The higher and middle classes of the people held necessary investigation into what was requisite to be done, the more simple among them fearing, in the event of negligence, to be soundly beaten by this prodigy of the grave but the wiser shrewdly concluding that were a remedy further delayed the atmosphere infected and corrupted by the constant whirlings through it of the this pestiferous corpse would engender disease and death to a great extent the necessity of providing against which was shown by frequent examples in similar cases they therefore procured ten young men renowned for boldness, who were to dig up the horrible carcass, and having cut it limb from limb, reduced it into food and fuel for the flames. When this was done, the commotion ceased. Moreover, it is stated that the monster, while it was being borne about, as it is said by Satan had told certain persons whom it had by chance encountered that as long as it remained unburned, the people should have no peace. Being burnt, tranquility appeared to be restored to them. But the pestilence which arose in consequence carried off the greater portion of them, for never did it so furiously rage elsewhere, though it was at the same time general throughout all the borders of England." as shall be more fully explained in its proper place. And finally, we come to William of Newburgh's most chilling account of the goings-on of the English in the century after the conquest of 1066. We take a look at the edge of the coin, the place where the unknown and the known become one, that thin veil between fact and faith, a place where believers and non-believers alike want so desperately to be real while simultaneously dreading the consequence of such an existence. Now, we hear again William's own words. Chapter 24, entitled, Of Certain Prodigies a tale that has come to us by a few names, most prominently being the tale of the Hundprest, but also as the origin of the modern folktale of the Melrose Vampire. It would not be easy to believe that the corpses of the dead should sally. I know not by what agency from their grave. And should wander about to the terror or destruction of the living, and again return to the tomb, which of its own accord spontaneously opened to receive them. Did not frequent examples occurring in our own times suffice to establish this fact, to the truth of which there is abundant testimony? It would be strange if such things should have happened formally since we can know evidence of them in the works of the ancient authors, whose vast labor it was to commit to writing every occurrence worthy of memory. For if they never neglected to register even events of modern interest, how could they have suppressed a fact, at once so amazing and horrible, supposing it to have happened in their day? Moreover, were I to write down all the instances of this kind, which I have ascertained to have been... To have befallen in our times, the undertaking would be beyond measure laborious and troublesome. So I will fain add two more only, and these of recent occurrence, to those I have already narrated, and insert them in our history, as occasion offers, as a warning to posterity. A few years ago, the chaplain of a certain illustrious lady, casting off mortality, was consigned to the tomb in that noble monastery, which is called Melrose. This man, having little respect for the sacred order to which he belonged, was excessively secular in his pursuits, and, what especially blackens his reputation as a minister of the Holy Sacrament, so addicted to the vanity of the chase as to be designated by many of the infamous title, Hundprest, or the Dog Priest and this occupation during his lifetime was either laughed at by men or considered it in a worldly view. But after his death, as the event showed, the guiltiness of it was brought to light for issuing from the grave at nighttime, he was presented by the meritorious resistance of its holy inmates from injuring or terrifying anyone within the monastery itself. Whereupon he wandered beyond the walls, and hovered chiefly, with loud groans and horrible murmurs, round the bedchamber of his former mistress. She, after this had frequently occurred, becoming exceedingly terrified, revealed her fears or danger to one of the friars, who visited her about the business of the monastery, demanding with tears that prayers more earnest than usual should be poured out to the Lord in her behalf, as for one in agony." With whose anxiety the friar, for she appeared deserving of the best endeavors on the part of the holy convent of that place by her frequent donations to it, piously and justly sympathized and promised a speedy recovery and remedy through through the mercy of the most high provider of all. Thereupon, returning to the monastery, he obtained the companionship of another friar of equally determined spirit and two powerful young men with whom he intended with constant vigilance to keep guard over the cemetery where that miserable priest lay buried. These four, therefore, furnished with arms and animated with courage, passed the night in that place, safe in the, ass- the assistance which each afforded to the other. Midnight, had now passed by and no monster appeared upon which it came to pass that 3 of the party leaving him only who had sought their company on the spot departed into the nearest house for the purpose as they averred of warming themselves for the for the night was cold as soon as this man was left alone in this place the devil imagining that he had found the right moment for breaking his courage, incontinently roused up his own chosen vessel, who appeared to have reposed longer than usual. Having beheld this from afar, he grew stiff with terror by reason of his being alone. But soon, recovering his courage, and no place of refuge being, he valiantly withstood the onset of the fiend, who came rushing upon him with a terrible noise, and he struck the axe, which he welded in his hand deep into the fiend's body. On receiving his wound, the monster groaned aloud, and turning his back, fled with rapidity, not at all interior to that with which he had advanced, while the admirable man urged his fleeing foe from behind, and compelled him to seek his own tomb again, which, opening of its own accord, receiving its guest, from the advance of the pursuer immediately appeared to close again with the same facility. In the meantime, they, who, impatient of the coldness of the night, had retreated to the fire, ran up, though somewhat too late, and having heard what had happened, rendered needful assistance in digging up and removing from the midst of the tomb the accursed corpse at the earliest dawn. When they had divested it of the clay cast forth with it, they found the huge wound it had received, and a great quantity of gore which had flowed from its from it in the sepulchre, and so having carried it away by the walls of the monastery and burnt it, they scattered the ashes to the winds. These things I have explained in a simple narration, as I myself heard them recounted by religious men." And ultimately, we have come to William of Newburgh's final tale of terror in the 12th century England, a tale that has come to be called The Vampire of Anantis Castle, from the same chapter he writes. Another event, also not unlike this, but more pernicious in its effects, happened at the castle, which is called Anantis. As I have heard from an aged monk who lived in honor and authority in those parts, and who related this event as having occurred in his own presence. A certain man of evil conduct, flying through fear of his enemies or the law, out of the province of York to the lord of the before named castle, Anantis, took up his abode there, and having cast upon a service befitting his humor, labored hard to increase rather than correct. "'his own evil propensities. "'He married a wife to his own ruin indeed. "'As it afterwards appeared, "'for hearing certain rumors respecting her, "'he was vexed with the spirit of jealousy. "'Anxious to ascertain the truth of these reports, "'he pretended to be going on a journey "'from which he would not return for some days, "'but coming back in the evening, "'he was privately introduced into his bedroom "'by a maidservant who was in the secret.' and lay hidden on a beam overhanging his wife's chamber, that he might prove with his own eyes if anything were done to the dishonor of his marriage bed. Thereupon beholding his wife in the act of fornication with a young man of the neighborhood, and in his indignation forgetful of his purpose, he fell and was dashed heavily to the ground near where they were lying. The adulterer himself leapt up and escaped, but the wife, cunningly dissembling the fact, busied herself in gently raising her fallen husband from the earth. As soon as, had, as he had partially recovered, he upbraided her with her adultery and threatened punishment, but she answered, "'Explain yourself, my lord,' she said, "'you are speaking unbecomingly, which must be imputed not to you, but to the sickness with which you are troubled.' Being much shaken by the fall, and his whole body stupefied, he was attacked with a disease, insomuch that the man whom I have mentioned, as having related these facts to me, visiting him in the pious discharge of his duties, admonished him to make confession of his sins, and receive the Christian Eucharist in proper form. But as he was occupied in thinking about what had happened to him, and what his wife had said, put off the wholesome advice until the morrow. That morrow. Which in this world he was fated never to behold. For the next night, destitute of Christian grace and a prey to his well earned misfortunes, he shared the deep slumber of death. A Christian burial indeed he received, though unworthy of it, but it did not much benefit him, for issuing By the handiwork of Satan, from his grave at night time and pursued by a pack of dogs with horrible barkings, he wandered through the courts and around the houses, while all men made fast their doors, and did not dare go abroad on any errand, whatever from the beginning of the night until the sunrise, for fear of meeting and being beaten black and blue by this vagrant monster. But those precautions were of no avail, for the atmosphere, poisoned by the vagaries of his foul carcass filled every house with disease and death by its pestiferous breath already did the town which but a short time ago was a populace appear almost deserted while those of its inhabitants who had escaped destruction migrated to other parts of the country lest they too should die the man from whose mouth i heard these things sorrowing over This desolation of his parish applied himself to a summon, a meeting of wise and religious men on that sacred day which is called Palm Sunday, in order that they might impart healthful counsel in so great a dilemma, and refresh the spirits of the miserable remnant of the people with consolation, however imperfect. Having delivered a discourse to the inhabitants after the solemn ceremonies of the hold, The day had been properly performed, he invited his clerical guests together with the other persons of honor who were present to his table, while they were thus banqueting, two young men, brothers they were, who had lost their father by this plague. Mutually encouraging one another, said, This monster has already destroyed our father, and will speedily destroy us also, unless we take steps to prevent it. Let us therefore do some bold action which will at once ensure our own safety." and revenge our father's death. There is no one to hinder us, for in the priest's house a feast is in progress, and the whole town is as silent as if deserted. Let us dig up this baneful pest, and burn it with fire. Therefore, snatching up a spade of but indifferent sharpness of edge, and hastening to the cemetery, they began to dig, and whilst they were thinking that they would have to dig to a greater depth, they suddenly before much of the earth had been removed, laid bare the corpse, swollen to an enormous corpulence, with its countenance beyond measure, turgid and suffused with blood, while the napkin in which it had been wrapped appeared nearly torn to pieces. The young men, however, spurred on by wrath, feared not, and inflicted a wound upon the senseless carcass, out of which incontinently flowed such as stream of blood, that it might have been taken for a leech filled with the blood of many persons. Then, dragging it beyond the village, they speedily constructed a funeral pyre, and upon one, one of them saying that the pestilential body would not burn unless its heart were torn out, the other laid open its side by repeated blows of the blunted spade, and thrusting in his hand, dragged out the accursed heart." this being torn piecemeal and the body now consigned to the flames it was announced to the guests what was going on who, running thither enabled themselves to testify henceforth to the circumstances when when that infernal hellhound had thus been destroyed the pestilence which was rife among the people ceased as if the air which had been corrupted by the contagious motions of the dreadful corpse were already purified by the fire which had consumed it These facts have been thus expounded. Let us return to the regular thread of history. His parting words of Book 5's Chapter 24, William of Newburgh makes the distinction between the threads of history, the regular threads of history, as he calls it, automatically establishing the existence of the irregular threads of history. Again, to the people of the Middle Ages, regular or irregular, history was history. He was clear to establish in a few spots throughout these chapters that he had heard these tales from an array of religious men. Even today, people lay a stronger claim in the words spoken by clergies of all religions, as well as of experts and authorities such as scientists, military personnel, and even police. William of Newburgh, having heard tales of high strangeness, from fellow monks and men of the cloth did not hesitate the authenticity of what he was told. In this episode, we have heard the exact words of a 12th century monk and chronicler of history as he saw things. These stories, two of ghosts or revenants, as the Anglophiles in the Middle Ages would have called them, who pestered and annoyed more than anything else, as well as one disturbing haunting centered around an abbey's monastery and one act of Satan, who raised a pestilence by way of lifting a dead man from his grave each night. These were the realities in which the very people we study in, ev- in events such as Canute's conquest of England, Basil the Bulgar slayer's eradication of Bulgarian threats upon Constantinople, Roger's subjugation of Sicily, the Lombard's push for control over Italy, the Genoese rivalry with Venice played out, and the fall of Al-Andalus and everything else to happen throughout Europe, these were the things spoken about around the table, while laborers wiped their brows on hot summer days and over cups of bayor and Vien. The other side of the coin was ever-present. Ghosts did haunt their streets at night. Disease was caused by Satan. Misfortune did spring forth from misdeeds in life. These howls, those howls, buried deep within a winter's breeze. Those were their ancestors, just beyond reach of the senses. But with them, nonetheless, always.